There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, June 3rd, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. <clears throat> you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details and to choose your membership level. Yep, five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks a month, you make the call. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And look, everybody, you know it, I know it. Friends don't let friends let Paul Martino and his friends buy our schools or push extremist politics in our community. Yes, Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch our truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, support local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmask the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Link is in today's show notes. On today's show... Well, we just got a solo event today. Uh, it's just me uh, checking in on uh, the weekly events. I've chosen out some, chosen out, listen to me, uh, chosen things to focus on. Uh, Biden, of course, last night gave a primetime speech, or it was last night? Yeah, last night. Primetime speech to call for a ban on assault weapons, sort of. He said, quote, after Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time, that can't be true. This time, we must actually do something. And yes, I would agree. Um, but unfortunately, um, that is a call that we've heard all too often. And even in that same speech, uh, Biden says, well, if we can't get the ban, maybe we can do something else, right? Already hedging on this kind of push for it. So we shall see. We shall see. Still holding out uh, hope for that Republican unicorn out there, the Biden administration is, but... We'll get there. Thanks to video ta uh, videotapes obtained by uh, Heidi Presbella, investigative reporter at Politico, we now have a window into the GOP plot to recruit, recruit and train political operatives to run as poll workers so that they could more effectively challenge voters and disrupt elections at the precinct level. The tapes also expose a GOP plot to build a nationwide district attorney network, their words, favorable to overturning the will of the majority at the election level. Um, this is really critical. A lot of this stuff uh, focuses in on what was happening in Detroit and some other areas. But it, look, we'd, be, we'd all be idiots if we think it was just something that was happening in Detroit. 
And direct action gets the goods. The Biden administration is canceling all the student loan debt held by former students of the predatory for-profit Corinthian colleges. But as Ann Bowers, a member of the debt collective and one of those students who had her debt canceled, as she tells the story, it was organizing and activism that won the day, not the goodwill of the Biden administration. Good lessons for us all. A little closer to home today, um, there are cracks forming in Pennsylvania's court's preemption rulings that have prevented municipalities from enacting their own gun laws. A great piece of reporting by um, Angela Columbus, uh, Columbus sorry, and Stephen Caruso of Spotlight PA breaks it all down. And uh, PB, PA <laughs> gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, also apparently known by his supervillian alias Dog Moth, he sent materials to the January 6th Select Committee this week. However, there are some serious exceptions to what he was asked to produce. Uh, he didn't have to produce anything that he did it as an official capacity as a state senator. How about that? But he's also willing to, uh, reportedly willing to testify before the committee. We shall see how this all goes. Once again, the teacher shortage alarm is sounding. Yes, especially in PA and New Jersey. New reporting in the Philadelphia Inquirer echoes reporting from earlier this year. Remember, we had uh, Shanna Danielson on the show to talk about exactly this issue. Um, so anyways, uh, the uh, new reporting from uh, earlier this year about the rapid decline in prospective teachers. Um, this is going to be a serious challenge. And I think, I think this is, uh, we can talk about this and think about this in a slow-moving shock doctrine kind of way, which we'll get into when we get into the show. And Abscuff gets a new old president following Jamie Martin's announcement that she would not be running for a second term due to health issues. Remember, Abscuff is the faculty union for the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. It used to be a 14-state school system, but now it is a 10-state school system. That's correct. Um, anyways, Ken Mash, uh, Martin's predecessor, will return as Abscuff's president as the faculty union enters its contract negotiations year. The current contract will expire June 30th, 2023, so next year. And given the unprecedented gutting of Pashi's universities and consolidating of six of the 14 state universities into two, all indications are that faculty and students may need to dust off their 2016 strike manuals. Now, look, uh, I'll talk more about this during the show. I'm obviously, I'm a member of ABSCUF. I'm a faculty member at Kutztown University. Um, so I am have a vested interest in this. And the reason why I'm foregrounding this now, one year out, is precisely because these things take time to organize. And a real question is going to be, um, how are faculty and students going to organize, if they're going to organize, um, uh, in the wake of this unprecedented assault on the state system of higher education it's an open question um, i'm hoping to get some folks on in the um on the show down the road to really talk about this in really frank terms um that's been tricky to do in the past and in today's last call yes we bring back last call this week uh doctors transplant the first 3d printed ear using human cells of the patient it's actually fascinating i'm absolutely I'm absolutely fascinated by this um by this story and Dungeons and Dragons made it into the New York Times. Yes, it did. I was like reading it like a little kid. Well, they made it just in time for the release of their new Monsters of the Multiverse. Yes, that is a hard copy, kids. Um, that is the multi uh, Monsters of the Multiverse source book. Whoop. 
Um, it's actually a cool article, and uh, what's happening in this uh, Monsters of the Multiverse is actually really interesting. Um, if you're in, you know, that world, we had some folks on the show at um, kind of, I don't know how long ago it was now, but talking about some of the changes that are happening with the community, given who's playing now. It's really cool. And that wheel keeps on turning. Yes, indeed. The wheel keeps on turning at Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. Yes, Eye of the World. I am on chapter... Let's see. I'm sorry, Amy. 37 now. <laughs> oh, God. Anyways, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. You know, and look, subscribe to his podcast wherever you get his podcast. Head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And it's official. You know, Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is still rocking the house. Not checking it out. I don't know what you're doing. It's flooding your streams. It's there. You just got to tap into it, right? You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get the, your podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rocky House. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow my Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And I'm telling you, um, in the wake of the uh, Supreme Court leak about Roe v. Wade, in the wake of, again, um, the uh, horrific mass shootings that are taking place in the wake of um, like neo-fascist, proto-fascist Doug Mastriano and friends running for the state. You need to be following what's happening, um, the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, because they are tapped in um, and you're going to want the information they got there. But attention all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s, the latest console, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. Yep, and kids get discounts with A's in their report card, and the season's almost over, folks. That's right. The end of the school year is... Oh, look at that. My shirt changes color. <laughs> that's cool. Um... um yeah, end of the school year. So head on over there. Um, and, you know, Kent makes this little graduation gift. Um, you know, checking out all the stuff they got there. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at The Game In. You got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at The Game In or The Game In PA at gmail.com. And a shout out goes to Jonathan Mann who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And look, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today by becoming a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Look, we're here for the fight, but we need you. All right, become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. So there we have it, folks. Uh, a beginning of yet another Friday, beginning of another month. Uh, happy Pride Month um, for all you folks who are out there. Um, and that comes as a time, which, of course, um, the attacks on uh, uh, the LGBTQ community here in Bucks County and the school districts um, has only increased. Um, all the more reason to make this Pride Month count. Um also, I've got my orange on today because the uh, um, this is the call. There's been a call for um, Moms to Man Action or um, 
every town gun effort, uh, whatever. Um, but uh, Mazda demand action, right? This is, of course, the orange are calling for from the uh, June 3rd to 5th to be wearing orange, um, kind of in the push to get some meaningful um, kind of gun control kind of out there. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how more horrific things can get, right? I mean, let's let's just be honest. You know, we talked about this on the show last Friday um, um, with uh, Amy Connect when she was on the show, um, how horrific this is. Um, we've, you know... Uh, I would like to say everybody, um, but I know it's not everybody, right? Um, if it was everybody, there wouldn't be a problem, but it's not everybody. Um, there are still people and political forces that are willing to throw their heads in the sand and pretend that guns have nothing to do um, with the, um, the meaningless massacre of children. And we saw in Tulsa in the hospitals, right? Um, once again, in the Tulsa situation, just like what we saw in um, in uh, Uvalde, you know, guy walked in, wasn't an 18-year-old this time, but guy walked in in the morning, walked into a gun store, bought an assault rifle, went to the hospital and killed four people. Wounded, I think, t around 10, I think is where it was. So, you know, look, it's like, let's, even if, even if, I, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to be senselessly optimistic here. Let me be very clear. I am not hopeful, right, uh, of getting this meaningful reform uh, until we get massive organizing and people in the streets. I think that is the only thing that is going to change things. I really do. Um and it's happening at a time when we have an unprecedented assault on all aspects of our society, right? I mean, women's body autonomy, autonomy, right? I mean, you know, the forced birthers are basically occupying our Supreme Court now. Turning women into second-class citizens. We have, you know, kids and people getting just massacred in the streets with assault weapons. We have uh, plans to turn back our democracy, right, through a kind of election interference. We have war in Ukraine, right? We have an out-of-control climate crisis, which is barely even discussed. There's a lot on the table. Now, if I'm going to put a, a, a positive, not positive, a, if I'm going to put the emphasis on the hope moving forward, is that the one thing is, is that all of these taken at once open up this possibility for a real serious beginning of a real serious movement, political movement, right? I mean, we had, you know, this is something we've talked about on the show quite a bit. On the left, we have, um, we have always struggled with kind of issue-oriented politics versus political movements, right? You know, the 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 left in this i shouldn't even say the left right but the, the majority of people right the from the center all the way over to the left we have never or at least in my lifetime we have never had in the last century or more 
a truly working class party or people's party, right? There's been multiple attempts at this, right? But most of our social movements and most of our political movements have been kind of outside putting pressure on the inside, right? And the Democratic Party is like, you know, I mean, after it finally got rid of the last of its uh, like overt racists, like in whatever the 60s, 78, oh, probably later than that, because you had even Berg was uh, still hanging around <clears throat> from there. But even it, it purged all the Southern Democrats, not purged, a lot of the Southern Democrats left because they, you know, couldn't be racist enough. So they went over to the Republican Party. But the Democrats have been like, you know, the 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 empty vessel, right, which has been filled with uh, kind of. You know, it's a big tent umbrella, to use that kind of cliche, that's been filled with different kind of interests that supposedly represents the rest of us, right? Republicans represent the rich, the Democrats represent the, the rest of us. Or like, you know, they represent Wall Street, we represent Main Street, blah, blah, blah. And we all know the problems with that because that hasn't been necessarily true, right? And we also know that the Democratic Party has also been willing to uh, more viciously attack progressives than it has Republicans, Right. So you got Nancy Pelosi, for example, willing to go out and every chance she gets to tell people that we need a strong Republican Party. Right. Uh, while at the same time that she's, uh, you know, willing to step on her own messaging and her own bills in order to chastise progressives. Right. You know, the, the big case of that was remember when they had uh, <clears throat> the Voting Rights Act. <clears throat> right. It was going to be HB one House Bill number one. The first thing that they were going to um, um, uh, announce. Right. First thing that they were going to do. Um, um, when the new Congress, when they took over, right? And what do they do, right? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Ilhan Omar made some comments about like Israel killing Palestinians. And so therefore, Nancy Pelosi got her leadership together in order to kind of, you know, chastise Ilhan Omar and basically have that completely block out any coverage of a voting rights bill, right? I mean, it's, it's just it's, it's just crazy. We see, you know, the same thing happening down in in Texas. Right. We had Jessica Cisneros, which was, um, you know, running this amazing campaign and had a, an opportunity to oust a uh, a pro gun, a a a rated NRA, a rated politician. He's a Democrat. Um, the only Democrat in the House who is um, still uh, a pro-birther, right? He's anti-abortion. Um, and instead, and but Jessica Cineros was, of course, a progressive. So naturally, Nancy Pelosi and her whole crew, right, the leadership of the Democratic Party, went down, invested money and time, and supported Henry Cuellar instead of the progressive. Yep, they supported the forced birther, pro-gun, NRA-backed, Democratic candidate instead of the progressive, right? When it comes to Republicans on the other side, though, they don't do that same kind of pressure. So we all know that as particular context. And I've said this before on the show is that, right, of course, the Democratic Party has contracted out a lot of its own politics, right? Um, and by contracted out, I mean, it's like, it, you know, it doesn't want to do the political work of organizing, right? It wants, it, it relies upon outside groups, right? Um, so instead of making a strong case for gun control, right, it relies on 
gun control organizations to push them in the right direction or to make enough noise in the media, which they then can kind of step in and say, oh, okay, I guess we're going to do this because that's there. It's a very cautious, very, very conservative kind of politics because um, it basically says we are not going to step on anything. We are not going to take the initiative on anything. We are going to wait until like the polls are behind us. Right. And even that's a lie. Right. Because it's really the money. Right. It's really that money because the polls have been behind things like Medicare for all for a long time. The polls have been behind like a, uh, you know, increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour plus a union like like forever. Right. I mean, so, you know, it's, it doesn't even matter. It just means polling within a very specific group of people. Anyways, anyways, anyways. So my point of saying that I wasn't planning on saying all that, but I did. Um, and I'm the. uh the fact that all these issues are coming to a crisis right now um, points to a, a direction of possibility, right? I do think that this summer there's going to be um, kind of major actions all over the country. Um, as soon as the uh, Supreme Court, um, you know, the new Supreme Court um, opinion um, getting rid of Roe, as soon as that drops, um, we're going to see the next round of, of protests and action on that. Um, and we're beginning to see some of these actions around, say, gun control. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Jamal Bowman was on, um, uh, I guess it was, you know, I don't know what they're calling it now, but the, the Rachel Maddow show used to be at, a, at you know, like nine o'clock or whatever. Um, she only does it on Monday now. They call it like NMSBC Prime or whatever like that. But uh, Mehdi Hassan was on last night when Jamal Bowman was on this show. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he was, you know, basically calling off the Democrats for not kind of taking action, which is really, really good. Um, <clears throat> but we can go. <clears throat> it's much easier right now you know i don't want to diminish this but if we look at what happened the uvalde um shooting of the massacre of those children um 19 children three teachers it's a lot easier to focus on the um, disastrous police response <clears throat> right because then it makes it seem like it, it was an issue that it didn't have to happen if the police just responded correctly you know, and I understand it. Look, I don't want to diminish it because it was it was horrific the way that they responded to. It. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. Yes, there were some children who probably would be alive today if those police had responded correctly. But you know what? If we're truthful about this, most of the kids would have already been dead. Which just brings us back to the original issue. Yes, there was police misconduct. Yeah, not misconduct. There was police incompetence but it was the assault rifle that was bought by an 18 year old the two assault rifles that was taken to school the assault rifle is what killed them right and it, yes there was a human being that pulled that trigger but they pulled a trigger on an assault weapon designed for war has no other purpose other than killing other human beings right so that brings us back to what's up front and center. Look, you know, you got to give Biden some credit. Like last night, uh, he went out and he gave a speech. Um, <clears throat> and it was it was pretty good, I have to say. 
Um, you know, um, I'm sorry, this is just really upsetting. Anyways, uh, he says, like, quote, after Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. Biden said this is in the uh, reporting in the Washington Post, reeling off a litany of mass killings. This time that can't be true. This time we actually must do something. Okay. And further down, the president, however, called for a set of sweeping changes, um, not the modest step, but sweeping changes to the country's gun laws, including banning assault weapons and limiting high capacity magazines. The political dynamics in this evenly divided Senate make the odds of those proposals remote. As many Republican senators and their constituents are deeply wedded to gun rights as part of a conservative and rural culture. Biden said that if it was politically impossible to ban assault weapons, Congress should at least raise the age when it can when it can legally buy um, legally purchase an assault weapon from 18 to 21. And he sought to nod to the sentiments of gun rights supporters, quote, I respect the culture and the tradition and the concern of lawful gun owners, he said. At the same time, the Second Amendment, like all the rights, is not absolute. You know. He undercuts his own message right there. Right. This this like this need of, of a particular crowd of Democratic Party leaders to always have to kind of like give one to the give one to the Republicans. <laughs> Make sure that you're kind of like, you know, catering to them. Make sure that you're kind of using their talking points. Make sure that, you know, you don't offend anybody. It's crazy, you know, and I have to say is that uh, also Mehdi Hassan last night, he did a great job of basically saying, like, let's look at what happened when Donald Trump announced in 20, what was it, uh, 2019, Donald Trump announced that he was going to declare a national emergency um, about immigration so that it could build the wall and then therefore divert all these resources to building this wall. This freaking insane kind of thing. He did that all through executive action, right? And Nancy Pelosi got up and said, you should watch the show. It's a, he does a great job of this. Um, got up and said, like, imagine, you know, I can't believe he declared a national emergency to do all this stuff. Imagine if, if, if somebody with different values were occupying that office and what they would do to, with a national emergency. Yeah, okay. There's Joe Biden, person with different values, right? Where's the freaking national emergency? Oh, we can't do that. I don't know what else you call. I mean, it blew my mind, right? I mean, since the Uvalde shooting, there was like eight additional mass shootings. The Tulsa one was the only one that registered, right? Kind of after that one. That's a national emergency, if you, you, you ask me. And these things build on each other. And you have a political party which is refusing to do, like the Republican Party refusing to even make kind of a minor concession on gun control. And you've got a conservative Democrat, a couple of them, right, in the, you know, in the state, in the, the U.S. Senate, Joe Manchin and others, who are also standing with the gun lobby and also get tons of money from the gun lobby. Morning, Amy. How are you? So... So what do we do? You know, the fact that he came out and he said we should ban assault weapons. I commend you, sir. 
But then, like, it's literally in, like, the next paragraph of what he's writing. He says, oh, but if we can't do that, if it's politically impossible to do that, at least we should raise the age from 18 to 21. At least we could do that. He's already given away the ghost. I mean, it's like it drives me crazy. It's like these folks that are sitting there say, how do you negotiate? You negotiate by telling your opposition that you, you're not even committed to the thing that you just said. On this belief that there's somehow you're gonna you're gonna get hit in the polls? I mean, I don't even know what this what the what the rationale is with that. It's this weird sense that everybody must have to feel comfortable. Well, I'm not comfortable, and they don't care about that. The parents and the teachers who suffered that 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 horrific tragedy, I don't think they're very comfortable right now. So who the hell are you speaking to? I mean, seriously, think about that like in terms of like the political. What is the political effectivity in a, in the Washington Post even acknowledges this, in a rare primetime speech? Okay, this, this is alert, alert, you know, emergency, important issue. Ban assault, Ralph. There's your message. Well, if we, if we can't do that, you know, maybe we can just at least give the victims candy. I mean, really? I, I, I just, I have a real hard time with that, right? I, and, you know, I know there are political realities. I'm not, a, I'm, not an, I'm not an idiot, right? I don't believe that somehow Joe Manchin is going to change his mind and he's going to be rational in this. I do not. And because Joe... Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are unwilling to give up the filibuster. That means you need 10 Republicans in order to do anything. Are we going to get 10 Republicans to do something? At best, you're going to get like a commission or you're going to get someone to look into something. Meanwhile, Joe Biden could take executive actions on things. I heard this one, for example, I was just like, oh, this is there you go. It is in the authority of the, uh, on the executive to basically say, hey, look, we are going to classify who, who is a gun seller. We're going to reclassify that, redefine that. Who is a gun seller? It's not just these specialized kind of gun outfits. No, it's going to be everybody. If you as an individual sell a gun, you are a gun seller. Therefore, you are required to have people submit to background checks. And if you don't do that, you then are therefore liable. There you go. That's a thing. That could be done, right? That could be done, but no. The other thing, I, I, I just want to talk a little bit about the way that the Washington Post frames this too as well, right? Because the, the media reports, the media reinforces a particular way of understanding the world, right? And it just so happens that it is one that a lot of the Democrats are also seeming to kind of believe is the kind of the true thing, right? 
So after, right after, this is the article, after it says, after Columbine, Sandy Hook, that this is the time, this can't be true, it's time we must do something. The next paragraph in the, in the Washington Post article says this, Biden delivered the speech at a delicate moment as a small bipartisan group of senators worked on a package of potential gun restrictions that they hoped would pass muster with conservatives. Even modest steps would mark a notable shift from recent years already tamping down this and by referring to a delicate moment right so think about how that plays itself out so he delivered the speech at a delicate moment right that therefore right if i'm sitting there and i'm mitch mcconnell because I, all i give a shit about is my own power i don't care about the actual death of children and all this other stuff right or if you do in your heart of hearts you sure as hell don't like act like it like meaning like vote like it and say things like it um, but, but making a delicate moment, right? Basically, it's saying, oh, no, Biden called for an assault weapons ban at this delicate moment. Oh, my God, is that going to fracture things? Is that going to break the delicate vase? Is that going to, oh, my God, did he, st- did he do something that broke it? Did he, did he, did he, did he, did he give a speech at too high of a pitch that the delicate glass broke? I mean, it's really... And, 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 and Democrats, Democratic, I, should, I want to always be clear, Democratic leadership is who I'm talking about. Democratic leadership buy into that. They believe, you know, and, and you know, I have to say, uh, you know, Sam Cedar did a great job on this, the majority report on Wednesday, right? There are no rational Republicans left. There are no ones that are going to be swayed by the relationships of the Senate. How do I know that? I just look at what they've done. every time there's a choice to be made and they say, well, you know, whatever you get, pick your moderate Democratic comes out. Well, me and my friend, we, you know, we were talking behind the scenes and there's a lot of people that think blah, blah, blah. Okay. Where's the proof in the pudding, right? I mean, if those backroom deals and those friendships and those relationships that are so important to getting things passed, if those are so meaningful and so important, give me the proof in the pudding not there on any major issue it is not there and because of that because there are no rational republicans left in the senate in a lot of the party because of that you hand over all the power to the most conservative like democrat joe manchin or the kind of i don't know corporate power player kirsten cinema to make decisions that affect all of us and kind of nix any possibility of major action. That's why we wait just to 10 years from now when, when, the, when the, the, the real effects of the climate crisis are going to be hitting us all even more than they are already. And there's going to be the same people saying, why didn't you do anything? Well, here we go. If there's a crisis, you have to behave like it was a crisis. Right. You remember, everybody remembers Donald Trump is an existential threat to American democracy. The Republican Party is an existential threat to American democracy. We heard that over and over again for Democratic leadership. If that is true. Then you have to behave as if it's true. That means treating it like the crisis that it is. That means taking drastic action. That means taking firm stance. 
Otherwise, what you're doing politically is that you are undermining your ability to do anything or be persuasive with the American public. Why? Because they see that you say one thing, but you don't act like it. Therefore, they distrust you. And can you blame them? I go back to like, you know, I, I know everybody, all Democrats love Obama, Obama, oh, Obama. But I will never forget on the campaign trail and what he said, like, I don't know if he said this on inauguration, but he said this like on the campaign. When I, if I'm elected president and I'm out there and I see workers on strike, I'm going to put on a comfortable pair of shoes and get out on those picket lines with you. I'll walk with you. Never once did he do that. Never once. Not even metaphorically. They could have passed the PRO Act. They could have done that and pushed that through right out of the gate. They delayed. They wanted to wait to get some Republicans on board. Let's see how the Republicans think. When they had the largest majorities that they've had in years, they piddled around. And it looked like out of the gate, the Biden administration, and they even said this, there was interviews and stories about this, how they learned from the Obama administration not to do that. And it looked like for the first few months, that was the case. And you'll go back, you listen to the show at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the Biden administration. I was like, whoa, I am pleasantly surprised. I never would have thought this. This is great. But then whatever, those little D.C. consultant class people kind of got speaking in their ears. The money started flowing. The campaign donors started getting their meetings, like you know, all that kind of stuff. And then Joe Manchin was getting given enough time to get off his heels and to kind of think about a strategy. And so instead of pushing Build Back Better, boom, 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 right away. Nope. They waited to get Republicans on board. That gave the Republicans enough time to kind of write themselves right? Get themselves in a fighting stance and move on forward, right? Shield formation, right? That's what they did. And still, Biden administration hasn't learned. Obama finally admitted that he was wrong. When? In the last year of his second term. Oh, I guess I miscalculated. No, duh. To anybody else who was like watching. But whatever. So, look, I so want to, so Again, that's good that that is happening, right? I'm glad that Biden said this stuff. And hopefully that puts some wind in the sails of people. But, you know, I also listened to um, – no, I'm, I'm going to – I'm gonna. I, I was listening to some commentators and some organizers who basically are just being, I think, dumb about politics. But but I'm not I, – I, we'll skip that for now. Um more on the ground here, like this is kind of, I think, some of the mentality that we need to be in um, when we're doing this organizing. I mean, look, Biden's going to do what Biden's going to do, right? The Democratic leadership are going to do what we're going to do. Um, meanwhile, there's a question for what do we do here? Like, what do we do here in Bucks County? What do we do here in Pennsylvania? What do we do um, kind of on the ground across the country? Right. Um, and what kind of organizing efforts we have. And I look, I have to say, you've heard me say this on the show before. I was uh, I was a judge of elections in my in my ward um, for the first time. There was nobody running for it. I did, I did a write in um, candidate just because I thought, look, this is important that we have somebody that's there that's, that you know cares about democracy. <laughs> you know, it's like whatever. And plus, look, 
I've always had, as I said on this, like a really soft spot for that kind of just basic civic contribution, right? You know, I'm just, I'm not there as a partisan. I'm there to just make sure that it's fair and everybody gets a chance, right? And that's how it played out. I mean, an amazing team that I work with, right? You know, you know, across the, you know, party lines, all that. It doesn't matter. Like people were there for one thing, to make sure this ran efficiently and people got the right to vote. That was freaking awesome. But now that process is threatened, right? We've heard now, we've heard about this, right? Poll workers getting threatened. We've heard about, um, you know, the the violence of the, that's embedded in the Republican Party right now, the kind of white supremacy that's embedded in the Republican Party, the big lie that's embedded in the Republican Party among activists themselves have been targeting even poll workers. We saw this in the case of... Um, I'm going to forget her last name, Ruby, 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 something. She was targeted by Obama uh, herself, African-American woman, was a poll worker, targeted, basically say, Ruby Friedman. She was targeted by, um, you know, uh, by by the Trump administration and by Republican operatives saying that she was a vote stealer, right? She was a professional kind of like election manipulator, which is freaking ridiculous, right? It was all, uh, of course, proven to be all wrong. But in the meanwhile, that, that woman's life was, she had to actually, you know, move out of her house. She had to kind of have guards. She had to have police protection uh, because there were people threatening her outside of her house and things like that. Like that's, we can look forward to that. So um, um, Heidi Presbella, right? Uh, she's a former N uh, NBC um, investigative reporter. She's now an investigative reporter at Politico. She um, broke this amazing story this week Um uh, in Politico about um, these PA, or I'm sorry, these um, GOP plans to basically seed, like seed the polls, like the actual, the poll workers, seed them with political operatives that are there for the purpose of undermining the election and handing it to the GOP. Okay. So let's just be clear. So if you're, if you're a poll worker, Right. You know, I was a judge of elections. Right. But there's also a whole bunch of poll workers that are, you know, sign people in on the books, um, you know, making sure that um, they're following the process, making sure that, you know, everything that is there for the local and state laws um, of wherever you're at, um, making sure that that's followed um, when there's a problem, making sure that gets rectified, all that kind of stuff. Um, but most importantly, making sure everybody is kind of has the access to vote, um, right? Um, and we make it do whatever. I've talked about that before. So uh, let me just read a little bit of her opening paragraph. This um, Heidi um, um, Presbella, right? So video recordings of Republican Party operatives meeting with grassroots activists provide an inside look at a multi-pronged strategy to target and potentially overturn votes in Democratic precincts install trained recruits as regular poll workers and put them in direct contact with party attorneys. This plan, as outlined by a Republican National Committee staffer in Michigan, includes utilizing rules designed to provide political balance among poll workers to install party-trained volunteers prepared to challenge voters at Democratic-majority polling places, developing a website to connect those workers to local lawyers, and establishing a network of party-friendly district attorneys who could intervene to block vote counts at certain precincts. Okay? So, in other words, poll workers who are there to make sure that the process runs well, that's where they're targeting this. So that instead of just having a person that wants to be there to do their civic duty and contribute, 
know that these people, they want them to be party operatives. Why? If you're trained in the rules, then you can know how to manipulate them. Right. And then once you're in there, you know, the things to look like and how to do that manipulation. Right. They'll they have an like an app, basically a program right for the website that they will be kind of immediately being able to do check in with party officials and with friendly district attorneys that are willing to intervene to challenge different kinds of lectures. Right. Why are they targeting Democratic majority polling places? Well, because that's where they want to suppress the vote. Right. They're probably not so much concerned about polling places like mine. Right. And a lot of, you know, say in Republican areas. Right. Because they're not so, you know, they know they've got margins there. But, you know, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put it past them in Bucks County. I will not put it past them if we don't see this in the fall. So that's the way it works. Right. So, again, Republican Party, these are again, let's be clear, this is Republican National Committee. This is like Republican National Committee staffer. This is not just some rando Republican or some crazy, you know, conspiracy theorist. This is someone from the Republican National Party walking people through how to do this, right? They are targeting the machinery of democracy, the institutions of democracy at the local level, right? At the county level, at the precinct level, right? We saw this. Now, you remember, I know Amy is uh, listening in right now, but Amy Connect um, was uh, kind of dropped in on one of these kind of right wing organizations, um, one of their open meetings uh, right here in Bucks County. And I don't know, I think I, at least when I was you know, waiting to hear what her experience was like, I was assuming that it's going to be, well, it was all this crazy talk and stuff like that. Nope. Instead, what she found was a well-organized orchestrated mechanism by which to take people who are invested in these conspiracy theories, if you will. Right. But then I've been, you know, these these charges about election fraud have been all ginned up and people are getting all like, you know, we got to do something funnels it in to Andy Meehan's group. Right. Funnels it into um, the right for bucks group. And what do they do there? Do they just give speeches with that make things more crazy? No, they connect people with the mechanism and help them run for local office. Right. The ones that nobody runs for. Like you should see how many uh, if you look at your ballot, especially in a primary election, um, but even in the fall, just take a look at how many blank spaces there are where there's nobody running for a local office. Right. These groups like Right for Bucks, like the kind of thing that we're seeing here in this reporting, they're targeting those mechanisms. Right. They're saying, here's your weak spots where people are not caring, but we kind of stack the deck there and we get lots of people involved there. One, you're training people on the kind of the machineries and the machinations or the, or the mechanizations of, of the way the things work. And the more they understand how it works, they're going to be able to kind of look at ways of subverting that. Right. Sometimes that's at the kind of the committee level, like looking to get people to run to challenge the committee level to kind of oust more moderate people and put in the extremists. So they kind of influence over, say, the Republican Party, which is happening right here in Bucks County. 
right? With, you know, Andy Meehan's group, obviously, with a purported goal of going out there and destroying um, the current Republican Party leadership and take over with this extremist um, groups. Um, they've already managed to hollow out the activist base. Now they're going for the, the elected officials. But all those things along the way that you're, there's pressure points, right? And if you, you need another example of that. If you think back to when the, um, there, were, there was these, uh, I think it was, this is right before the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage. Right. Uh, it might have been after the decision. I, I'm just I'm not sure. I think it was right before this happened. Um, we started seeing hearing stories from around the country. And one happened right here in uh, in Pennsylvania on the good side of things. But um, of these recorders of deeds. <laughs> right. Or the uh, county clerk. Right. And, and it's slightly different depending on the county or the state about who has the authority to issue marriage license, for example. So. There were like ideologically right wing people in those spaces, right, that purposely got elected, whether or not it was on just this issue. I don't know, but purposely got elected in order to um, be in those spaces. And when it came time for couples to come forward to request a marriage certificate and they were same sex couples, there were these right wing conservatives that were in those positions that denied them. And they knew the rules. They knew the rules better than the people coming in for the certificate. They knew the rules better than the kind of like, you know, politicos because they were there and they were in the machinery. Like infections. There was a really interesting um, case here in Pennsylvania, which actually Raging Chicken helped, um, helped amplify and get in the national level. This is kind of back in the day. When um, there was a, uh, I, th I think it was a recorder of deeds down in Chester County, maybe? I think it was Chester County. Um, happened to be a Democrat. And a couple came in, I believe it was two women, came in to get a marriage license. And it, the Supreme Court had not yet issued its decision making it legal. But he looked at that and then he said, I took an oath under Pennsylvania Constitution not to discriminate, basically. Right, to provide equal access and all this kind of stuff. And he said it was it would be breaking his constitutional Pennsylvania constitutional oath not to give them a marriage license. And so he issued a marriage license because he took his oath of office above what was the existing current law. Right. We found out about that. There was somebody that was down there, kind of reported back. We wrote a story about this and we kind of pushed it out to our networks. And that night um uh that person was on the Rachel Maddow show right so you know that, that that's a kind of a positive story over here but people that are in those places right and i think look i my experience has been most of the people that work in those offices um that are kind of like you know civil servants and things like this they're they might have their own political leanings and stuff like that, but they're not particularly super ideological when it comes to their job, right? They're there to kind of do a good job, right? And, and, and do the best that they can within all this kind of stuff. And some of them are really unprepared for the assault that is coming, right? When you suddenly are now having to deal with not just how do you accomplish something and how do you organize, you know, an election, for example, now you're going to have to do battle with ideological warriors in your own office, right? That's where we're headed right now. And that's what this plan lays out. 
Uh, Amy comments here, uh, kind of following up what I was saying about Meehan, says the um, committee seats were definitely a target for Meehan. He and many others attending his meetings were and still are incredibly hateful toward anti-Trumpism GOP members. Exactly. And they targeted them. Right. They have no problem going to war in their own party. Right. <laughs> right? Because, they, I mean, they're after something. Right. They've got a goal. They've got an agenda. Right. Happy Friday, Emily. So there you have it. Um, so, well, another piece here. So in I just want to give you a flavor now of what's in those videos. Again, this is going back to the political report, um, Heidi Prisbella, um, and some of her reporting. So this is kind of what was said in those um, in those videos. So let me read a little bit from here again. This quote, being a poll worker, you just have so many more rights and things you can do to stop something um, to stop something than as a poll challenger. So a poll challenger is a party person, right? Somebody from a candidate who can go and watch things and challenge stuff, right? That's kind of, they're not responsible for running things. They're ones that are kind of observing and looking on the outside, right? So this person is saying, this was Matthew uh, Matthew Seafried, or Seafried uh, the RNC's election integrity director for Michigan, right, is what he said. And he's stressing the importance of obtaining official designations as poll workers in a meeting with GOP activists in Wayne County last November 6th. It is one of a series of recordings of GOP meetings between the summers of 2021 and May of this year obtained by Politico. Backing up those frontline workers, quote, it's going to be an army, Seyfried uh, promised at an October 5th training session. Quote, we're going to have more lawyers than we've ever recruited because let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? He continues. Seafried also said the RNC will hold quote, workshops and equip poll workers with a hotline and a website developed by Zendesk, a software support company used by on-time retailers, which will allow them to live chat with party attorneys on Election Day. In a May 2022 training session, he said he'd achieved a goal set from last winter. More than, check this out, more than 5,600 individuals had signed up to be poll workers and... Several days ago, he submitted an initial list of more than 850 names to the Detroit clerk. Democrat Janice Winfrey, who serves as the clerk, would be bound to pick names from the list submitted by the party under a local law intended to ensure bipartisan representation and an unbiased team of precinct workers. Separately, Political obtained Zoom, tape, Zoom tapings of Tim Griffin, legal counsel to the Amistad Project, a self-described election integrity group that Donald Trump's former lawyer Judy, uh, Rudy Giuliani once portrayed as a partner in the Trump campaign's legal efforts to overturn the 2020 election, meeting with activists from multiple states and discussing plans for identifying friendly district attorneys who could stage real-time interventions in local election disputes. On the recording, Griffin speaks of building a nationwide network of district attorney allies and how to create a legal trap for Winfrey. Quote, remember, guys, we're trying to build out a nationwide district attorney network. Your local district attorney, as we always say, is more powerful than your congressman, Griffin said during the September 21st meeting. Quote, they're the ones that can seat a grand jury. They're the ones that can start an investigation, issue subpoenas, and make sure records are retained, etc., he said. The article goes on. So I definitely check out this article. The link will be in today's show notes, um, the full show notes. That are, they're not fully posted there yet, um, but I will make, I'm going to actually post it in the uh, chat right now. 
because it is absolutely critical. Co. I know this is not helpful for people who are listening on the podcast, but if you're watching on live on YouTube right now, uh, there's the link. Um, but it will be in today's show notes in the podcast. So. What I want to draw attention to and the reason why um, I, I thought this article was worthy of uh, spending some time with is because they're really focused very clearly, like a laser focused on where the power levers are, right? And how to actually pull those levers of power, right? So this way it becomes all the more important. And, you know, now I'm actually that much more thankful that um, I decided to run for judge of elections now, right? Um and, and, and I'm especially thankful having having read this now because, you know, we had um, it was it was said to me several folks were, was were surprised that um, there were several people that were volunteering to become poll workers um, in the fall. Right. And I believe I believe could be wrong, but I, I believe that most the, most of those people that came forward, they're just wanting to do their part, too, as well. Right. They knew other people that we were working with and they, they had done it before, want to come back, that kind of thing. Right. But we can we can expect to see this kind of list um, being generated going forward. So all the more reason. Right. Um, you know, as they say, run for something. Right. Um, and then some of our organizing efforts need to be um, focused on this stuff. And I really do think that we need to start be thinking strategically about how do we how do we most be most effective in terms of pulling on those levers of power where we can, right? Um, because this is critical. So, um, and I guess I kind of on that theme <laughs> in some ways, um, I thought this was a great story. So you may have heard also this week that um, former Corinthian uh, students from Corinthian colleges, this was a for-profit, um, you know, um, college system that, um, you know, students were just completely, completely taken advantage of, um, right? They are a predatory organization. And then um, there were some students who had their, um, their debt canceled a while back just because of a case that was brought forward. Um, but now Biden came forward here and basically saying all of those students who have debt from those colleges Right. Because under well, I think it was like under Obama, or maybe it was under Trump. I don't remember, but um, had a selective number of people got their, their um, you know, their debt wiped away. Nope, wiping it all out. Right. So uh, Ann Bowers, um, she is a member of the Debt Collective and she uh, was one of the students who had her debt eliminated in that kind of first round. Um, she wrote a piece for In These Times that I think uh, is is just excellent. Right. So let me uh, let me highlight some part, parts of it for you. So she starts with, say, this week, former students of Corinthian Colleges, a predatory for-profit school that once boasted more than 100 campuses across the country, received news that their student loans will be canceled. In an announcement, Department of Education press release called the move, quote, the largest single, single loan discharge the department has made in history, unquote. As a former student of Everest College, which is a branch of Corinthian, I am overjoyed that everyone who attended the scam school will finally be made whole. This action, announced on June 2nd, will impact 560,000 560, former Corinthian students and 5.8 million, I think, million or billion, I think it's 5.8 million, must be, 
uh, and student loan debt will be canceled. This amounts to a stunning victory for debtors who took collective action to win relief. And this is what I love that she does here. She says this, but I want to set the record straight. Thank you, Ann Bowers. The victory is not the result of the Biden administration's goodwill. It is the outcome of a fierce organizing campaign by debtors that has been going on for almost eight years. I should know. I was one part of I was part of a group of former students that launched a seven-year-long student debt strike to win loan consolidation from the federal government. Now, as Biden um, considers canceling student loan debt more broadly, the outcome for more Corinthian students should be sent a clear message that the only way to resolve the issue of pernicious student loan debt is to cancel it for everybody and to do so automatically without making borrowers apply individually. Yes, yes, yes. And then she goes into a little bit of her backstory. She talks about why she got involved, right? And then she said, you know, organizers for the Debt Collective, a union of, uh, for debtors that also heard about the plight of Corinthian Bowers and found our group on Facebook. This is she was organizing there, started getting involved. Now she takes us to the uh, winter of 2015. In the winter of 2015, a group of former students met in person to plan the campaign. We were all in a similar situation. None of us had been able to find the high paying jobs that Corinthian had promised, and none of us could afford to pay back the astronomical sums that we owed. We turned our inability to repay into a rallying cry and launched a student debt strike, the first in U.S. history, to demand the cancellation of our loans. We called ourselves the Corinthian 15. The law was on our side. We relied on an obscure legal mechanism called borrower defense to repayment <coughs> that required the government to cancel the debts of defrauded students. Since the Department of Education did not even uh, did not even have an application available to those who wanted to apply for relief, we worked with lawyers to design a form and then made it available to the Debt Collective's website. By the spring of 2015, applications for former for-profit college students rolled in by the thousands, right? So think about what they did there. This is very similar to some of the, the kind of organizing strategy that, say, um, the um, Students for Sweatshops did. They looked at where they had levers. They looked at where they could exercise power collectively. What did they find? They found that through working together, through organizing around this, working with these lawyers to say, okay, we found this obscure legal mechanism called the borrower defense repayment that required the government to cancel debt of defrauded students. They knew they had been defrauded, right? Nobody was talking about it, right? They found a legal mechanism that they could push on and they can utilize right, that was going to force some kind of action from the federal government, right? It doesn't automatically do this, but that gave them the lever and it gave them the organizing tool to organize around something very specifically, right, which is what they did. Down a little bit. Our campaign won the support of major media organizations like the New York Times editorial board and politicians like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton. As more former um, for-profit college students realized that they had been scammed, their numbers grew. We were joined by students who had attended other predatory schools, such as ITT Technical Institutes, and their group of 15 strikers grew, soon grew to 100. Right? And then she talks about how the Department of Education dragged its feet. Officials claimed that they cared about us and wanted to help, but rather than just canceling the debts that were shattering lives and ruining futures, they set up a series of administrative processes and claimed they needed to study the issue. Little by little, a few former students who filled out the correct forms and checked the right boxes got their loans relieved, but hundreds of thousands of others waited in anguish. Right? And she said she was one of the lucky ones. 
down a little bit further. Just like former Corinthian students won by turning our individual struggles struggles into a collective demand, I believe that we could win even more if student loan debtors from colleges of all kinds fight back together. We can demand a more fair and a just higher education system and an end to the for-profit schools that prey on low-income students. The change we see can start with the flick of the president's pen. Rather than hand-rigging over means testing and debt caps, Biden can cancel all federal student loans via executive order. And we've talked about this extensively. The American Prospect laid that out right in his day one agenda that was published back in 2019 about how this can happen and what are the histories and what and the reason why it could happen. And then she goes on here. This is how we do it. Right. This is such a good example, such a great article that lays out the Okay, I as an individual am experiencing this thing. I'm looking around for others who are experiencing the same thing. Together, we're going to kind of reach out and we're going to start making our stories heard. Then other people are going to get involved. Then we're going to turn our attentions toward the mechanism by which we can execute power. Not just a rally for the sake of having a rally, but the ways that we can actually utilize existing, in this case, law to leverage our demands and force pressure. And that becomes yet another tool of organizing, right? You know, any organizer will tell you this, right? This is kind of what you're going to build this kind of campaign, right? You're going to go up the campaign mountain, as it said, right? You're going to organize to get something, and then, and then you're going to organize and use that as the next opportunity to go forward. And this is exactly what she did, right? So again, I put that out there for folks to, you know, to take a look, especially those folks who are kind of like looking for motivation, looking for that kind of pathway, right? Uh, we've uh, like highlighted multiple people on this show, right, who are doing this organizing work and are going out and doing this. So this is like another kind of, you know, log on the fire to remind us what gets the goods. It's not the goodwill of politicians or let's, let me put it in a different way. Let me be more positive about it. Is that the goodwill of politi politicians only gets activated under pressure, right? Rarely do we have a case that a politician gets elected to whatever office, right? And does things just because of their goodwill, especially if they face pushback, right? Especially if they, sp they face like, you know, just the kind of like, well, it's the way things have always been done. I don't want to disrupt the apple cart. <coughs> the way they do the right things is under pressure, right? Or put a different way, if you want to get more positive, when they see that they have a constituency that they are not going to have to take the blows for themselves, right? Politicians are like that, right? They will step forward if they see that they can hitch their wagon to a particular train, right? We can be that train, right? Anyways, okay, I'm going to take a quick break here. Uh, I think it's kind of, well, I don't know, a rather upbeat place to end. Um, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about some stuff happening here in Pennsylvania um, before we get to this week's last call. So I'll remind you, you can help support this show by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you can also help out this show by kind of like sharing our YouTube channel with folks, encouraging people to subscribe. We passed the 200 subscriber marks on our YouTube channel, which is fantastic. We're at 206 as of this morning absolutely thrilled um the more that we have people subscribe the more that you like the stream like this show right now that you're watching the more you hit that little like button you hit that notification bell so you know, you know every time you go live that helps other people find the show right also if you're listening to this in the podcast if you're listening to this on on apple podcast make sure you hit us give us that five star review leave us a review tell people why you want to listen to the show that helps people find the show no matter what platform that you're listening on 
go leave us that review. Hit those kind of, you know, those likes. Look, we're in an algorithmic world here, and this is one of the ways that we can help other people find this show so we can amplify the voices of people doing the work, the hard work on the ground in our communities, right? Um, so there you have it. So anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to be back right after this quick break. Oh, that wasn't the right one. <laughs> here we go. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1900. That was the day that the International Lady Garment Workers Union was formed. Eleven delegates attended the founding meeting. They represented the major garment-making cities of the East Coast. Most of the membership of these unions were Jewish immigrant women. Many were socialists or had been involved with trade unions in their home countries before making their move to the United States. They brought this union culture with them to the garment industry. Herman Grossman was elected the first president of the union. Men held all of the leadership positions of the ILGWU during its early years. This opened the union to criticism that the leadership did not represent the membership. Despite this criticism, the union grew quickly. Only four locals joined the ILGWU at its first meeting. But soon, locals were chartered beyond the East Coast in cities such as Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, and San Francisco. From its inception, the ILGWU became a leading advocate for what is known as social unionism. This type of unionism looks beyond workplace issues to a broader agenda of social welfare. This included holding labor history classes, English language classes, and performance art. In 1913, the union opened a health center for its members in New York City. The ILGWU became an important progressive force in the labor movement. In 1975, they launched the Look for the Union Label ad campaign, including this commercial from 1981. Look for the union label when you are buying as more and more garment work moved out of the United States, membership fell. In 1995, the ILGWU joined with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union to form Unite. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here with you live on this really kind of turning out to be a nice day out there this June 3rd, Friday morning, um, moving into the afternoon, I guess. Um, so a couple things happen around Pennsylvania. Um, there's some interesting moves that are happening. I think this is under pressure of what is happening, um, about the organizing that is happening around, um, say, gun control. Um there's a great piece by Angela Columbus and uh, Stephen Caruso in Spotlight PA. Um, and what they do in that piece uh, is they break down some cracks in here. So like, so basically what's happened is that um, there, there's this thing called preemption. If you don't know what preemption is already, um, basically what it says is that the state laws can be preempt any local laws, right, uh, on, on particular things. It's not for everything, but it's under several things. One of them is gun laws. All right. So when Philadelphia, for example, decided, hey, look, 
we've got this gun violence. Um, we want to find a way of preventing that. So therefore, we want to restrict access to weapons. We want to kind of um, pass, say, um, gun control laws or gun restrictions or background checks, whatever it might be. Um, in order to kind of crack down on this stuff, um, in Pennsylvania, um, cities like Pittsburgh, cities like uh, Philadelphia, cities like Allentown have been unable to pass those laws because of this idea about preemption and say that, well, the state preempts those local laws because it has a, as the decisions have been, it has a driving interest in keeping things uniform um, no matter where you live in the, in the, in the Commonwealth, right? So, um, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh have tried to use. I remember when I lived in Allentown, there was a, um, an individual who uh, set up a firing range in their backyard. Right. They lived in a row house. OK. And they set up a firing range. They were firing stuff in their in their backyard. Right. In the inner city. And the, the, the city council was like and the mayor at the time was like, what is going on here? And basically told them they couldn't do that. And then as a result, right, they basically either they strengthened the law or passed a new law that kind of made it even more explicit, said that you are not allowed to discharge firearms within the city limits of Allentown, right? Literally in days, I, it might even been before the, the before it was officially passed, right? It was being discussed. Within days, the NRA and other kind of like, you know, you know pro-gun death people were... Um, uh, pushed back and threatened to sue the city of Allentown if they did that. They said, because you're not allowed to do this under this kind of preemption clause and so on. And so, you know, and the city would have to fight it legally. And they were looking at their budget. They were just, Allentown was just starting to make this turnaround. And I believe it was um, um, Mayor Ed Pulowski at the time. I think that was who was the mayor. Basically, they and the city, they, they pulled back. They dropped it. Because they were afraid of being sued. That was like my introduction to this thing. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? They're afraid of this, but then there was all this other laws. Anyways, that's the context, right? So there's there's these three lawsuits that are moving forward, basically, you know, pushing forward um, to um, for gun restrictions, right? Um, the one is, let's see, the city of Philadelphia, for example, um, is... Is, is bringing suit with Ceasefire PA, a nonprofit seeks to reduce gun violence. The residents have lost loved ones to firearms, right? Um, there's a organization called the Public Interest Law Center in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, Mimi McKenzie is one of the attorneys there. And she's quoted in this article in the Spotlight PA article where they're going on a full on attack on the firearm preemption, right? They're going after this entirely. Now, this went to um, the uh, state, the Commonwealth Court and Judge Patricia McCullough, who name may ring a bell because she's played an increasingly important role in election integrity, quote unquote, issues, all this other stuff. She is a Republican on the Commonwealth Court who's been writing these opinions, right, basically said that the citizens of the Commonwealth would not be subjected to varying different firearm regulations. They travel from town to town. No, we're not going to allow this suit to go forward. Right? We're not going to, you know, we're going to get rid of it. But as these mass shootings have happened, there seems to be some kind of pressure, right? And this is what I thought this article was so interesting in terms of um, really noticing and unpacking, right? This is what they say. In an unusual move, the court amended its decision shortly after it was issued to include a nod to the need for more public discourse on guns. And another judge suggested that it might be time for the state's highest court to reconsider precedent. In a concurring opinion, 
Judge Renee Cohn, uh, Jubarir, a Republican, highlighted the toll that gun violence takes on certain communities, which she said could justify stricter restrictions than those that exist in state law. She said that novel constitution and arguments raised by the city could provide a basis for the state Supreme Court to reexamine the preemption question. She quoted a senior judge in a separate case in involving gun preemption laws who wrote, quote, it is neither just to impose unnecessarily harsh limits in communities where they are not required, nor consistent with simple humanity to deny basic safety regulations to citizens who desperately need them. This is a big deal. Right now, this opinion by itself, again, it is it, it does not change that preemption stuff. But what it is, is now that it's in writing, right, as part of a concurring opinion, that becomes part of the stuff that points the pathway. We saw this, how this worked in, like, you know, getting rid of Roe, but now we see this moving in a potential positive direction. Says that, okay, look, this is where we can see um, there's a need that needs to be revisited. So in other words, if that's the case, right, there's these open up that are recognizing that there's, say, different interest at stake in a large metropolitan area versus a kind of rural hunting community, right? And that maybe that we need to be able to have, be able to adjust for these differences, right? Based based upon, you know, it doesn't have to be just an urban area. There's any particular place that's experiencing kind of crazy gun violence, right? So that opens it up, which means there may be a pathway moving forward um, in the legal realm. So this is something to pay attention to as people are organizing around, um, you know, gun laws in the state. Um, this is going to be something cool to follow. I really encourage you to check out the folks um, um, over at the uh, Public Interest Law Center in Philadelphia um, and see what they're doing uh, with this case. Also check out Ceasefire PA to see how this case is moving forward because I think these are some levers that uh, we, we can push. Um, <clears throat> Emily asked, does anyone in chat know if PA elects Supreme Court judges via regional district now? I don't believe that passed. Um, but if somebody wants to look that up and throw that in chat, that'd be great. I think that was a proposal. I do not think that that went forward. Um, but I know that, uh, Republicans were interested in doing that because it would secure, it would basically flip the, um, uh, it would ensure basically Republican domination of the Supreme court too, as well. Right. Um, that's a great question, Emily. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. So a second thing that, um, we saw kind of reporting there, um, is that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Doug Mastriano, right? Of course, he's running for governor of the Republican Party. He's the Christian nationalist um, <clears throat> who has basically pledged to completely undermine our kind of election um, laws to make sure that we, uh, um, we you know, the, the whole Commonwealth becomes a uh, forced birther state, um, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, the worst possible candidate to be running. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, I'm just going to call him Dog Moth. Dog Moth is going to be my, my name for him. Uh, and, you know, it came from his signature is basically on these forms that's showing that he submitted um, uh, materials to the January 6th commission um, and his signatures are, are coming up. And so there's these pictures that were floating online of his signature. And if you look at his signature, it looks like, you know, that pretty much says dog moth, right? I mean, I know you wanted to say Doug Mastriano, but that looks like it says dog moth to me. So my thing is that that must be his like, you know, he actually, you know, he said the quiet part out loud. That's his super, super secret, super villain alias name. His name is dog moth. Um, so I'm going to have some fun with that. Um, Got to stop dog moth. Um, anyways, so what's interesting is that, you know, there were some headlines about, oh, look, you know, Doug Mastriano basically submitted all these materials. He was, you know, he's cooperating with the January 6th Select Committee. 
sort of, right? If you look at it in particular, what the January 6th committee basically said is like, you do not have to include any, we're asking for materials from you about January 6th, but anything that you did your official capacity, you do not have to give us. And so all you basically, I mean, come on, you do the math. All you have to do is basically say, oh, all this was done in my official capacity, therefore I'm not giving you this information. Most of what he submitted, according to the articles in, say, the Washington Post and the, and the Politico and all these other places, um, Spotlight PA, I think, also had a piece on it. Most of what he submitted are copies of his social media posts, right? But he also did give, you know, basically the money he paid for uh, those buses to go to January 6th, um, handed over apparently the rosters of the people who were on those buses, Um and any of the things that was out there because that was um, not in his official capacity, right? Um, and he's also, at least his lawyers, he's not quoted in here, but his lawyers have indicated that he's uh, willing to voluntary, voluntarily sit um, for, say, deposition or, testi- or to testify before the January 6th commission. We'll see what if that actually happens. But that was a kind of a little piece to keep an eye on, too, here in Pennsylvania. And uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer also um, issued a new report. Um, or, or there's a new article about the teacher shortage. Um, it's going to be bad. Um, what's what's interesting is that you remember I had Shanna Danielson on the show um, kind of a few weeks back now. And after an article that was, I want to say it was in the uh, Patriot News, was um, uh, maybe it was the PA Spotlight, about this, t- this teacher shortage. It was a really excellent piece. Um, I should be clear about that. Maybe it was... Uh, Bill Schachner, because he always does great work. But, well, um, I don't know. Anyways, uh, but a new piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer is basically looking at the um, this what's coming up to be a real crisis. Um, and after kind of talking about this one uh, person, um, Bethany Condriet, right? Um, she wants to become a teacher and so on at East Stroudsburg University. But the article goes on and says, okay, but there aren't simply aren't enough people like Condriet who want to be teachers. Um, East Stroudsburg University, which was founded on uh, as a teacher's preparation school more than a century ago, has seen a 27% drop in students studying to be teachers since 2011. And the school is far from alone. It has been widely documented that the pandemic exacerbated problems teachers have long faced, whether low pay, lack of respect, or grim working conditions, contributing to a staffing shortage in many areas of the country. In April, the nation's public schools employed 7.7 million workers, down about 313,000 workers since the pandemic started in March 2020, according to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Right. So that just shows you what goes on. There's some great charts in this piece, too, as well, that shows like in 2012 in Pennsylvania, there were um, uh, 11,880 people in the um, teacher education programs. Right, or people who completed the teacher education programs, that was 2012. Uh, it is down in 2020, it is now down to 5,553, right? So that's um, like less than half or more than half, I guess, drop, right? Um, and that's and that dropped fast. And what the other thing that's kind of important to note, if you look at these charts, is that the biggest drop went from 2012, right, to 2015. Right. I want to note something here, because what was happening, if you remember what happened in 2012, right, or what happened in, say, 2011. Right. So these are certificates that are granted in 2010 and 2010. 
the Tea Party kind of, you know, the, the you know, the whatever, the crazies of the day, they won sweeping victories in Congress, right? And also across the states, right? Governor Tom Corbett was elected here in Pennsylvania, right? And he became one of those governors um, um, that was elected on the Tea Party victories. And there was a bunch of Tea Party folks that were swept into office here at the state legislature. Tom Corbett called for a 50% cut in the state system of higher education. 50% cut. The only thing that prevented that 50% cut was the stellar work by our kind of our, not just our union, but all the affiliated unions, the even surprise, surprise, even some of the administrators of Pashi were there. We had um, all sorts of say student protests and faculty protests, major of some of the largest protests I was involved with at the, at the Capitol um, on the Capitol um, steps. Um, there were lobbying efforts. There was, it was all hands on deck push. And then we got it down to about a 20% cut. Still, it's a 20% cut. Since that time, it has been nothing but austerity. At the same time as that, let's recall, there has been a ramping up right in the same timeline, a ramping up of charter schools, right? There has been a, uh, a, a cut education cuts that we're still not recovering for at K through 12. Yes. Governor Tom Wolf has begun to put back a lot of that money, but for, you know, a five years, five straight years, K through 12 schools, especially schools in kind of say more urban areas or underserved areas and rural areas, um, got the brunt, took, took that on the chin, right? They got hit the hardest. And so when I'm looking at these numbers, it doesn't just, it, this is not just the pandemic, right? Most of that happened in the wake of Republican domination of our legislature and the education cuts that took place, right? It was not a great place to kind of like, you know, recruit potential teachers because they saw what was happening. Teachers were losing their jobs or getting laid off, right? That's when the big rounds of retrenchment were going through um, through the uh, state system of higher education. All these teachers colleges were, were, were getting hit really hard. At the same time, testing standards were ramping up. Right. And teachers were just like teachers were like exhausted and students who were looking at what was happening, what was happening around them. were also questioning about whether this is something that they wanted to go into. And that was especially true as they're kind of some, you know, faculty retired and then universities did not replace them. So the classes were larger. They couldn't get at some of their classes. All that stuff was happening. The largest drop in the number of people who completed teacher education programs took place between 2012 and 2015, right? That is Corbett. What's happened since then, of course, is that that's leveled off. Now, look, there is that trend, right? There is a trend, especially as you see you ramping up the cultural politics, the cultural extremism that is happening in our school board elections. Teachers see this, what's going on. Potential teachers see this going on and say, I don't want to be part of that. Parents are looking at what's happening and saying, maybe I'm not going to encourage my kid to be a teacher, even though I know they love kids, even though this is what they wanted to do, might not be the best time for that. Especially when you're seeing your pay being cut, you're seeing worse and worse contracts every single every single round, a cutting of medical benefits, all the reasons people went into teaching, right, to be close to home, to be in the community, to contribute back there and to do so, right, to make a decent living recognize as the professional and the expert you are in doing that thing, right? All that's been undermined culturally through the Republican extremist politics. 
right? And frankly, no help from the corporate Democrats who have turned everything into an assessment like bonanza. You know, the push for standardized testing under Obama, that push for standardized testing and to, you know, double down on the kind of no child left behind nonsense from the Bush administration, that also contributed to it. I would hear students talking like outside my office because the guy whose office used to be next to mine was the one who ran our uh, secondary education English program. And I'd hear students who come back from student teaching and find out what was going on in the classroom and they're like breaking down in tears because they didn't want to. They said, that's not what I've been taught to do. That's that I'm not able to do what I want. Or teachers who were coming back after their second year of teaching and then being like, I, I can't take it anymore. I went there to help these kids and I'm not allowed to do that. I have to do these standardized nonsense all that's taking place during that time if you look at if you look at new jersey which did not have the massive tea party kind of swing that we saw in 2010 and 2011 into 2011 they started at graduating 6639 people from teacher education program right so it was a lower place to begin which is interesting enough and that declined to 3,017, right? So it's still more than half declined. But it, it still had that decline between 2012 and 2015, but it was not as dramatic as a drop, right? It was more of a level decline. You had another big drop between 2015 and 2016. I'm not sure why that was the case. Maybe there was a retirement contract, something was going on in there, I'm not sure. But all the reporting in this article shows you that this was something was happening before, and then the pandemic just made things worse, right? In 2021, this is one of the statistics in this article that blew my mind. For the first time, the number of people receiving emergency permits to teach in Pennsylvania, either on a temporary basis while pursuing their teaching certificate or as a long-term substitute, outnumbered the total of newly certified in-state teachers. So, what does that mean? It means that teachers in Pennsylvania who graduated teaching, who graduated, you know, um, with a teaching degree and got their certification, fewer people did that than got an emergency permit. So in other words, the teaching glut is so much that School districts are having to give emergency permits to people to just fill the classroom, to get in there. What do you got? Oh, what? You, you, you taught, you taught, uh, you taught um, uh, yoga classes and you're good kind of work with that. And you've got a background. What was your major in? Oh, oh, you had a history background. You're doing well. Hey, why don't you come in here and maybe you can teach these history classes. Right. Or what? You're a business person. What? You do math as part of that. Right. Can you come in and maybe teach some kind of um, basic math classes for us? Right. Or people like I can't get a job in my, my field. Well, maybe I'll try teaching. I'll, I'll just get an emergency certification, even though I don't have a teaching degree. I'll get in there and they'll give me a kind of like a two week crack course and then we'll be done. Right. That's that's horrifying. That that's happening in our schools. But it is happening. This article also breaks down kind of what has happened in terms of the increase in credentialing and the increase of the kind of bureaucratic process that it is. Um, again, thanks to both state and federal regulations about all this kind of stuff. But the, the idea that everything has to be assessed and measured and you have to take all these standardized tests and you have to study for these tests and you have to do all that stuff. More and more students are just like, I don't want to do it. 
I thought I was done with standardized testing when I got out of high school. Instead, I have to do all this stuff all over again in college. Forget it. That's not why I do this. Right? So all this is going on. So again, this is going to be something we're facing. Now, why did I talk about this at the beginning of the show as a slow-moving shock doctrine? Right? Because this is the, you know, again, there were years we talked about this as, as, you know, that was the framework which we tried to kind of emphasize again and again and again because it's right. Naomi Klein's book, Shock Doctrine, lays all this stuff out. Basically what it is, is that when you slowly, either there's a major crisis or you create a crisis slowly over time, eventually the thing that you create a crisis for, so let's just take education in this case, once you start defunding education, which you make working conditions worse, which this article goes into about how working conditions for teachers have gotten worse. Once you decrease the pay, you make it less attractive, right? You make it more bureaucratic. You understaff everything so everything takes longer. You basically create a situation of crisis where you've lost the support of the teachers. You've lost support of the public. You've lost support of the students. Right. Because the institution has been deprived of its resources. And once you do that through these privatization push, through the charterization, the charter was a big one, of course, Pennsylvania, especially where you started funneling all these public school monies into these private for profit, in many cases, for profit charters or cyber schools, bled districts dry of that money. That was part of a Republican GOP conservative plan to basically have public money go to pay for private education so that they could teach their God stuff in their schools. I want to tell you. So this has been an effective strategy. Again, the Republicans and the right wing have a long term outlook on this stuff. And we are now experiencing the results of over a decade, well over a decade, but a concerted effort for this past decade at direct assault on public education, both at the K through 12 level and in higher education. It is no mystery why the state system of higher education just saw the consolidation of six schools into one this year and the constant austerity measures, right, to basically drive down the numbers of faculty. Students at Kutztown University cannot get the classes they need in order to graduate because the administration refuses to hire new faculty to fill the ones of the um, people that have retired, for example, or left for better jobs because they're done with this place. Right? That's the crisis we're in right now. And what does that mean going forward? Yes. And then you got all these cultural attacks happening at the school boards on top of that makes it less attractive. My guess would be we're going to see a down, we're going to see a downtick, right? We're going to see a kind of a further reduction in the number of students who are going into education because of this. That's happening as teachers. And this is what that other article that we, we focused on kind of early on in this year, the uh, other article focused on teachers leaving because they can't take it anymore. I had a colleague of mine post to Facebook this, you know, just yesterday, what would it take for you to leave higher education? Right. This person was just you're kind of posting it out there kind of as just a question, right, to kind of other colleagues. She's a colleague of mine. She's awesome. Um, and it was interesting hearing people's responses. People are exhausted and they're tired. Not everybody. Not trying to be like, you know, a downer about this stuff, but I mean, people are exhausted. I'm exhausted. 
with having just to deal with the nonsense, not with teaching, not with what I was trained to do, right? But with just the nonce, the austerity, the, the, the assess everything and then never have your reports read, never have any impact of it. You know, I mean, look, they know how to grind you down, right? In my case, they won, right? I'm just, I, I'm, I've had to grieve the loss of what I, of the career I really was hoping to have, you know, for the last five years. I mean, I'm finally kind of coming out on the other end of that, but um, still people hate me for it, but whatever. Um, so it is what it is. So this is a great piece of reporting. Again, the link is in today's show notes. Um, do check it out because I do think it, it shows that there is an opening right now. Let me put it like this. There's an opening right now for right wing um um, the right wing to come in and push for further privatization and further charterization of our schools. And it's going to, I think it's going to manifest itself in terms of um, teacher contracts, teacher negotiations in K through 12. Um, this is happening actually a neighbor of mine. Uh, they're going through a contract negotiation right now, which is just absolutely ridiculous um, that um, what they're asking the teachers to suck up after the, um, after the pandemic Um you know, everyone was like, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. But as soon as the pandemic is over, we're like, oh, no, no, we didn't really mean that. <laughs> we just wanted you all to work through really, really hazardous conditions. And we had to kind of put a happy face on to make you feel better about it. And that's all. When it comes to contract negotiations, now we're looking to gut your pay. We're looking to kind of further, um, you know, undermine your working conditions and so on. Right. So that's what I think we're going to be facing. And we saw this with Paul Martino. This is one of the reasons why we launched this pack, right? Um, with levelfield.net. We wanted to say, okay, look, we need to basically be investing money kind of in some of these local areas because look, nobody else is doing it. But we're gonna have to at least kind of find ways of kind of supporting each other locally in order to make sure that, um, that we get good candidates on school boards, right? To make sure that we get local candidates that are going to fight for us when in this, in the state legislature, right? So, um, Kind of that's where we're at. So this is this is kind of where, where we need to be fighting, I think. Um, and this is why we saw that Paul Martino started talking about teacher contracts and wanted um, two of the democratically elected, uh, the, the, the two people that were elected as Democrats on the Central Park School Board um, said that because they had gotten support from PSEA, the teachers union, uh, that they had to kind of um, basically excuse themselves from negotiations because they were biased, right? In other words, you want to have a, a right-wing, Republican-dominated school board that would be negotiating with the teachers' union. Why? Because Republicans generally don't like the teachers' unions. So that's where they're going next. They're going after teachers' unions, and they're going after the, the further expansion of private money in our public schools or taking our public money out for their private interests. Mark my words, this is what is going to happen. This is coming down the pike, right? Um, so there you have it. All right, uh, let's see. We'll take one last thing here quick. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, what I just want to, I want to mention this too as well. Um, we're going to be hearing more about this coming up. I don't have a lot to say about it today, but uh, Jamie Martin, Dr. Jamie Martin was the president of ABSCUF. That's the Association of Pennsylvania um, State College and University Faculties, the union that I'm part of. Um, Jamie Martin stepped down um after uh she was originally going to run for another term um she did not because of some health issues um and um that came up kind of suddenly um so there wasn't this broad-based campaign i think everybody was expecting her to run another term 
Um, and it came at a kind of at a tough time. Right. I mean, actually, I mean, look, health issues aside, um, I think the past two years uh, with Chancellor Greenstein could have taken a toll on anybody, um, even at your your best health. Uh, it was exhausting. I know she was exhausted, um, but that, you know, that that's a separate issue. But you have the consolidation of these schools. You have a further, you know, there's this, you know, uh, austerity measures that are being forced on all the, um, the state system universities. Um, Chancellor Greenstein has basically got, you know, the legislature in its back pocket. Even people like, um, you know, Judy Swank, who used to be a supporter of, um, of uh, the state system of higher education in a way um, that was ensuring that she's actually on the side of Greenstein. She's become one of his most vocal kind of thing. You know, she, she's like, she's like the, you know, she's the carrot to his stick kind of thing. She's like... Well, you know, we had to do something. We have she gives all the nice words to it, but really, it's the same thing. She's just supporting his plan, right? And she's a Democrat. Um, so, anyways, this is also crucial because this year is the uh, this is the final year of the latest contract, right? Which means that we're going to be, and this is actually a contact contract negotiation year. For those of you who are not familiar with kind of union environments, basically, you know, if the last year of your co contract, you start into renegotiations, right? You start say, okay, we're negotiating for that next contract. This is where the hardball is going to get played. Now, I've talked to a number of people who are kind of involved with the union um, at the state level, and um, nobody that I've spoken to, at least, is optimistic about what this next year brings. I've had a number of people say to me that they think that we are going to have to prepare for our second strike. If you remember in 2016, we had um, Abscuff's first ever strike, which we won in three days, right? Frankly, I don't know if I've said this before on the show, but that was the reason I stayed at Kutztown. Um, 2016, I was burnt out 100%. I had... Um, programs that I helped build gutted and handed over to other folks. Uh, we went through series of um, retrenchments, which were, which were devastating. Um, there were a bunch of number of other things that happened, what our administration had done um, in terms of uh, around our working conditions and so on, which I just like, I hit rock bottom. I said, this is not what I, this is not what I planned. I did not want my career to be trying to get people to see the lies that the administration is going and fighting them at every step of the way. It was exhausting. And I, I had planned to, I had planned to go on the job market and I had a couple leads already and, and all that kind of stuff. But when, um, when it looked like we were actually, when it was real that we were going to strike, um, and, you know, I had worked on that stuff before when we came close um, in a previous negotiations. And, you know, I was asked, you know, would you be part of that team? You know, would you be, you know, work on a strike? I mean, would you help the preparations? And of course, we had a, a great team that we worked with before. Uh, Mike Ambone, good friend of mine and I, you know, he is, you know, masterful at this stuff. Um, he was the picket chair. But, you know, look, I mean, Mike... Mike and I work together. We we've worked together quite a, quite a bit. Mike was Mike is the is a much better organizer than I can ever hope to be. Um, um, just in, you know, 
putting shifts together, contacting people, all that kind of, I mean, that kind of thing is just great. So we worked together um, as a team, put together an amazing uh, uh, group of folks there out of the picket line, um, people that were brand new to Kutztown, right, who'd only been there for a year or two, right, um, who were out there on the line organizing, helping out, um, kind of making things happen. It was just amazing to people who had been there for a long period of time, right? We had people that had refused to talk to one another because of whatever bullshit that has happened in their professional careers, sometimes justified, sometimes unjustified, right? But whatever things like that, people that were out in that line together. Doesn't mean that all was forgiven and all was hunky dory. No, no, but they were out in that line together. I mean, we worked our tails off to do that. And I decided, look, I, I can't do both. I can't be on the job market and organize for this strike. And for my birthday that year, October 19th, that happened to be my birthday. That's when we went on strike. Um, so that's what I did. That's what kind of kept me at Kutztown was the strike. And it looks like that, you know, we may have to have that kind of effort again. Um, you know, hopefully locally, we're going to be in a good space. We have a, we have a, uh, you know, you've heard me complain a little bit about some of the action here. We have a new, uh, president, a local president, um, Albert Fu, who's going to be our local president and he's got a lot of energy. Um, he's a, uh, I hate to say younger, but he is younger, but he's a newer faculty member. He's got a lot of energy. He's really super smart. Um, he's been connected to statewide stuff, and hopefully that's going to that's gonna help here locally. Um, but I do think that statewide, look, we're behind the eight ball. And um, if it's really going to be requiring a, a serious push in preparations, um, we want to be covering it. So the reason why I'm, I'm, this is all, I'm saying all this stuff is by way of we're going to be talking a little bit more about this um, early on, right? So you're going to be hearing more of what's happening with ABSCUF. Just want to give you a little background, a little information first, um, so you understand why we're talking about this. Because the state system of higher education is the is Pennsylvania state uh, public education. It is the system that was set up to provide equal access to quality education for working class um, Pennsylvanians. It's why I came to teach here. It's a union school, and it's going to be under assault this year. So. Eyes on the prize, and we'll see where this goes, everybody. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back with this week's uh, last call. I'm going to keep it real brief, um, but uh, thank you for sticking with me. Um, we'll be back right after this. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken Press. For the past seven years, Raging Chicken Press has brought pull-no-punches, progressive reporting and commentary to the interwebs. Our long-form investigative pieces, stories that no access journalist wants to touch, or rollicking weekly podcasts strive to advance progressive movements and perspectives rooted in the struggles happening across the country or down the street. We've broken national stories and caused our share of discomfort in the halls of power. If we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. And you can help support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a member of Raging Chicken Press for as little as $5 a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. We need to make sure to keep the movement in the media and the media in the movement. Best way you can do that is to become a member of Raging Chicken today by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Thank you for your energy, your encouragement, and your support. Keep up the fight. I'm 
everybody, everybody, welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here for this week's last call. We haven't had a last call in a long time um, because we've been doing all sorts of different stuff with our Friday show. Uh, we've had, as you know, we've had Amy connect on kind of quite a bit, which has been freaking awesome. I know she's going to be back soon. Amy, I don't know if you caught this earlier on, but uh, um, chapter 37. I'm in chapter 37. Uh, anyways, uh, the reason I bring up the Wheel of Time, uh, Eye of the World, that's book one in the uh, Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. Uh, for those of you who have been sticking around, listening to the end of a show before, you know that uh, Amy and I are cooking up a little kind of book chat kind of thing. Um, Going to work on some things that are not kind of overtly political for a change and actually um, talk about some cool books that we've been reading. Um, this is the one that we're kind of going to focus on first, uh, especially that um, the new series just got launched this last year on Amazon Prime. It's uh, uh, the Wheel of Time series. Uh, I really love the series. Um, the book is very different. Um um than than the series in a bunch of different ways which is kind of what you know amy when she first suggested this that was kind of like the idea is like oh let's look at some of these kind of points of comparison so we'll have more on that kind of coming up so but i'm still plugging in i'm still plugging along um i take i take a few minutes to read every chance i get now because i'm like i want to get i get to the end right i'm page like whatever let's see chapter 37 is page uh 540 right so and i still have uh, about 200 pages left to read. <laughs> so it's a long book. It's a long book. So anyways, that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if people saw this and like, this is, look, y y people know I'm a, I've been getting back into D&D uh, &D on Dungeons and Dragons. And this summer I will be DMing my first ever um, campaign with my kids and some of their friends. Um, in, in, when I feel more comfortable with it, I swear I would love, this would be something I would love to kind of, do with folks in this community who might be kind of interested in doing that. I think it'd be freaking awesome um, to do like a, a, a like a, a D and D campaign campaign that's coming out of the raging chicken community. Um, I, I'm also going to do this thing on. I, we'll see how many I'm actually going to be able to do, but I've been playing around with this. But this is going to be strictly on Patreon because it's like whatever. It's a uh, it's kind of a little extra and it's a little fun thing. It's over here. I'm going to do this thing on Patreons. Uh, if the if well, it's going to be part of this channel, right? It's going to be part of our Patreon channel. Um, and it'll be available for uh, for patrons uh, of Raging Chicken, but it's going to call a D and D and D. Right. It's going to be like Dungeons and Dragons and dad <laughs> kind of thing. And it's going to be kind of like a story of kind of me trying to figure out how to do all this stuff. Right. Um, as a player and kind of like short tips and some updates, I'll probably be sharing some things. I'm going to be probably running a module first, which is, you know, a pre-made story that you're kind of, you know, facilitating, right. As a DM, um, dungeon master. Um, and, but I'm also developing my own world, right. Where I'm going to have my own campaign and the, the stuff. And I've been doing a work on this for the past year, um, coming up with different ideas about the story and so on. So I'll be sharing a bit of that stuff too, as well. Um, and where I'm drawing inspiration from and ideas and so on. I'm also probably going to be plugging a bunch of, um, amazing folks who, who create maps, right. Um, to, for folks to use, um, uh, on Patreon, um, really cool really cool folks like you know that i i've been using their stuff i've been I, I became patrons of them right kind of contributing to their channels because they're doing such cool things um and just kind of plugging them a little bit and then kind of be telling that story um kind of along the way so that'll be kind of fun to do but anyways the um the new york times had a uh 
a story uh, about D and D. Kind of blew my mind. It was. It kind of. I thought it kind of came out of the blue, um, but there it was. It's a story. Uh, again, it'll be in today's show notes. It's called "Who's Playing Dungeons and Dragons These Days: The Usual Fans and Then Some." And uh, it just starts out with some of the, the background. Like, I, I love the, the beginning of this was done, I think, really well because it reminded me, it really situates me. This is where you could tell, like, my age and who's writing this and what they're thinking about. So here's the opening paragraphs. I just love them. So everyone's been playing Dungeons & Dragons without you. Your coworkers, Anderson Cooper, Tiffany Haddish, more than 50 million people worldwide have interacted with D&D since it was created in the mid-1970s, according to its publisher. And while that number also includes movies, video games, books, television, and live streams. It doesn't factor in the number of people who reached, um, who reached, uh, it reached over TikTok, which is just huge. The infamous tabletop role-playing game became a household name when the Satanic Panic, a general fear of Satanic ritual abuse that caught fire nationwide in the 1980s, began to take root in the suburbs. Anything with even a remote whiff of the occult, from astrology to heavy metal, was suspect. Since casting spells during a game could label you a devil worshiper, a nerd, or something in between, Dungeons & Dragons was banished to the underground. Now, I, I love this for a couple reasons. Like one, because this resonated so much and it also speaks like to this kind of like feeling of loss I had as a kid, right? Because I was like, I, I loved geeky stuff, right? But I was also, I also played sports, right? I also like was, you know, I, I mean, I had a, I'm not saying I was super popular, but I mean, it was like, I had like, every the, the people that I hung out with in my neighborhood, my whole neighborhood was just kind of like filled with lots of folks that were involved with sports. We were involved in things in school, right? You know, so it was kind of like we were, you know, part of that kind of community. I was kind of, you know, I wasn't like, like the nerd, right? I was kind of like, you know, someone who played sports, who was going to see that I was like, you know, do well, do well in school. Um, wasn't like the super popular crowd, but kind of like, you know, in there friends with all different kinds of people, all that kind of thing. When I first heard about D&D, I was like totally psyched. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. But at the same time, that whole satanic panic thing, I can't even tell you how crazy that was. Like my my friends and I, my, from my friends Scott, Todd, John, all this, we we uh, uh, we loved, you know, this was Kiss, right? Um, uh, the band Kiss, right? You know, dressed up in all that makeup and all that kind of stuff. You know, Detroit, Rock City, you know, that kind of stuff. We, we, we were like, whoa, kids, it was great. You know, we played it like, you know, air guitar on our tennis rackets. And we had like our quote unquote tennis racket band. And we played Kiss songs, whatever. We took, um, I'll never forget this time. It was over at my friend's house. And uh, we were taking T-shirts at the time. This is whatever our thing at the time. We were, and we cut off the sleeves to them. Right. And then we'd buy sequins and clothing markers and things like this. We'd design our own T-shirts. Right. Um and so we started doing some some kiss ones, right? And I remember like his mom being really uncomfortable with that. And then there was all this other things like, well, and she's like, you know what? It, well, she, I love this woman, so she's like, she wasn't like, rah, rah, but she was, you know what they say? I heard somebody saying, you know what that stands for? Right? I'm like, what? Kids in service of Satan? I'm like, what? <laughs> right? And there was this real concern. It was like, I grew up in a very Catholic area. My wife and I were talking about this the other night. It's like, literally everybody I knew was Catholic, right? I mean, whether it was Italian or Polish or 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 Irish, you know, Lebanese, they're all Catholic, right? And that was running through the churches at the time. So it was like kids in service to Satan. There was all this kind of panic about, you know, um, moors loosening up and all that kind of stuff, you know, echoes of some of the things we hear now, but in a different valence. 
And D and D was one of the one of, one of the things that you heard stories after story after story about kids who were possessed during making D and D and all that. It was all just nonsense, right? My point being is that so because of kind of like who I was, just kind of in this middle space, right? Um, and you know, like any kid during the eighties, right, or seventies and eighties, is like you know there was such social divisions and clickness and things like this is like I, I didn't want to be labeled a geek right it was already smart enough or too smart right for my own good in my neighborhood um and um and, and I was like you know had all these people kind of talk, worry about Satan so there wasn't really those opportunities I didn't know how to find those communities to be able to play this and I remember buying a couple things like to read and I just didn't know what to do with it all these rules and stuff and um, I wasn't a super comic book nerd, right? So, I mean, that's where a lot of these places they would end up being playing, but I would read some X-Men. It wasn't really until I was in high school that I came across some people that were interested in it. We just never got to play. So I never even got to play D&D until I was in college. Um, and then it was like, oh my God, I loved it, right? It was just, it was so much fun. And, but it's been a long time and I've never really found number where I've gone, like a community of people that that's, that's what they're doing. Right. And I had never DM'd. I never played it long enough where I felt confident with it, where I could kind of see if I could reach out to other people because I just didn't know what to do um, or how to do it or how to set up a game and all that. Um, so anyways, this has been a long time coming to come back. So it's been really cool to see this. And what that article started off was like, you know, right there. Right. Remembered so much. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out about this, and this is really what is um, the case? So they start talking about all these new people getting involved. And I'll just read just a couple of things here. It says, the new guard will tell you that playing D&D is like doing improv around the table with your friends. A collective willing, um, a collective willing suspension of disbelief keeps the narrative going. Um, dice randomize the outcomes. And while it is at its roots, a war game, well, sort of, the appeal is less about winning or personal scores. The consensus among players interviewed for this article is that the real life magic is born out of the communal storytelling. It's about the journey and not the destination, right? It's like one of those, one of those games where you are not in competition with other people you're playing with, right? You're, you're, you're working together to accomplish something, which is the other cool thing. And then they say this, it's the newer generations of players who make D and D and tabletop role playing games generally what it is today. Connie Chang, a 24 year old game master who runs a, a semi, a semi Tumblr famous D and D meme blog, her term, um, is the GM of Transplaner, a not a quote, non-colonial anti-orientalist live stream game consisting entirely of players who are transgender, gender or people of color. Quote, I really feel like marginalized people are the vanguard of making D&D blow up again, um, Mix Chan, uh, Chang said. People say stranger things, but I'm like, nah, it's the queer community. So within the community, it's black folks, right? Um, um, Chang continued. It's the Asian folks. It's the indigenous folks. It's the people of color who are really bringing cool, innovative, fresh, and much-needed new blood and air to perspectives and voices, ways of GMing, and ways of playing to the space that would shake up an otherwise stale play community straight up. I just want to echo that 100%, right? The one thing that I said I always felt uncomfortable, like, you know, playing that game and things like this, it was extraordinarily white. It was extraordinarily kind of like European in mythology and kind of approach, right? Uh, and now there's this explosion of folks, right, that are kind of non-white, right, are non-cis, 
right, that are playing this game and that's having an impact on the rules. Like the, this, this kind of Monsters, Monsters of the Multiverse book that I was talking about before. It's a kind of the latest um, kind of a new released uh, uh, kind of compendium, if you will. Um, they're going through all these rule changes in how even how characters are described. There's this movement away. We had somebody on the show not too long ago um, talking about um, ways of kind of getting away from this discourse around race, right? And a kind of a really um, uh, critical assessment of some of the mythologies and the kind of what's embedded in the cultural narratives there. Because of course, if you're ch you're telling a collective story. And that collective story is embedded with racism, is embedded with sexism, is embedded with okay, a, a Eurocentric, ultimately white supremacist way of viewing the world, right? That limits what hap can happen in that communal space and reproduces, right, the worst of those things. Patriarchy, racism, colonialism, all that kind of stuff. So there's been this kind of push from below, right, from those people who are getting involved, exactly as Connie Chang says, right, who are changing it from the inside out. And the positive thing, at least in terms of the corporate end of it, right, Wizards of the Coast, of the, of the company that owns this stuff, has been slowly, well, has been, well, has been actively bringing more people onto their channels, right? People of color, trans folks, queer folks, you know, um, you know, uh, anti-colonial and different kind of perspective. They've been kind of encouraging that on their shows. It's been kind of uneven and kind of funny in its unevenness at times, but they're they're changing the way these books are written. So Monsters, Monsters of the Multiverse is another one of really getting away from this kind of really rigid understanding of race into much more about kind of like cultures and histories, right? Um, traditions as opposed to races. That's really kind of interesting to see that all happening. Um, which is another reason why it makes it that much more cool to um, be be trying to GM for the first time with my kids right now is because all that stuff is possible, right? Where, you, you know, it's like there's tools to help do that. Um, and look, I'll tell you all this right now is like my, my campaign is really kind of the one that I'm designing for myself is really rooted in the problems of the present, right? It's not told like in this kind of overt way, um, but in this terms of like, if we had to kind of talk about it at a moment of backsliding, right? Um, in a different kind of world. So it's gonna, that's gonna be kind of um, what, what's gonna drive a lot of some of the narrative force around um, what goes on. So that's pretty fun. So anyways, uh, just a shout out to the folks in New York Times who did that because I was really excited. Um, Last thing, this is just kind of a cool little thing that I think is just going to, you know, it's one of these moments. Is, this is like if I had to step back from all the craziness and look at things that are just fascinating. Uh, there was a doctor. They transplanted the first 3D printed ear using human cells of the patient. Um, they actually, uh, they did the transplant, uses her, her own cells um, and gr like printed with human tissue, with human cells, printed an ear, transplanted it. And it, it, it's been successful so far. And the more the cellulose and things like this is going to kind of grow into that um, thing that they printed. Um, this is a, this is a, a woman who had a had a very rare condition where the you know, the, 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 the bulbous part of your ear, all the cellulose stuff of your ear didn't grow um, properly. And so they're kind of making it shaped like the other one. So it's it's just fascinating. And so now, while this is not, you know, this is not a launch to the future so quickly yet, um, these, the scientists and the researchers and the doctors who were interviewed as part of this piece, this is also something that was in New York times. You can um, click on today's show notes to find out more. Um, they're saying that we're on that cusp of being able to do more printing of even things like organs and things. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but, um, 
think of what that could absolutely revolutionize, right? Where you could actually print something almost kind of on demand, right? Instead of having to wait for, say, a kidney donor or a heart transplant or something like this, that you could have something that would be grown from your own cells, right? Um, so that your body is less apt to reject it, right? Um, and then ideally, right, um, that could be um, more available. Now, of course, like any technology, right? What we always have to be pushing for is that as this happens, right, this has to be a, uh, like a democratized process. It can't be available only to the rich. And as long as we have the kind of uh, medical insurance system that we have, that's the way it's going to work. So Medicare for all so we can all get our 3D printed ears, right? I'm crazy. Anyways, that's what I got for today. Um, I just thought that was a, uh, a cool way to end uh, some really just amazing, mind-blowing advancements. Um, just, you know, if you take me back to where I was, you know, in, when Utica, New York growing up and to think about what I saw as a future then and the kind of where we're at now, being able to do this stuff is really incredible. So um, little moment of scientific hope maybe there. I don't know. Anyways, that's what I got for today. Uh, it's been great hanging out with all of you today. As is it all as usual, thank you to Amy. Thank you to Emily. Thank you to everybody else who's listening today. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for all the supporters out there. Thank you to all of our members, our patrons who are, you know, what keeps all this going, right? And if you want to help join them, you want to help support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron today. Uh, Emily says, yes, enjoy this glorious weather today and have a great weekend. I'm right with you, Emily. I'm going to go out. I'm going to mow the lawn, do some yard work. I'm looking forward to it. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Uh, thanks to our top Twitter warriors out there who continue to share, uh, share the show. Um, let everybody else know um, where we're at. Appreciate your support. Appreciate your time and appreciate you um, in this little space that we can create this community together. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, um, thank you all. And we will see you. Oh, I should say, oh, last thing I want to say, Monday, I'm not quite sure we're doing. We've got a couple of feelers out there of the show on Out to Coop Live from Monday. Uh, I'll have details on that on our social media uh, when I find out. Um, we'll let you know then. This is Kevin Mahoney, um, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we'll be back with you on Monday and again next week. Let's keep it rolling, everybody. In the struggle, in the fight, but have a great freaking weekend. See ya! See ya!